0: everybody. Welcome to The Squadron, the podcast devoted to creating and optimizing a healthy and fulfilling life for first responders all around the world. I'm your host, Garrett Slaw. I'm a sergeant for a sheriff's department in Southern California, and on this show, I talk to experts in a variety of fields looking for those force multipliers that I can apply to my own life. I want to make us happier and healthier so we can tackle our challenging careers with energy and focus. The entire purpose of this podcast is to make myself better and share what I'm learning with you. Before we get to the interview, I want to remind you that you can get more information on this episode, including show notes and links, by going to thesquadroom.net. You can sign up for our mailing list. You can also subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher, and, of course, follow me on Instagram and Twitter, at The Squadroom. Our guest today, my first international guest, uh, Sean O'Gorman, host of the Strong Life Project podcast, with a website under the same name. Sean was a police officer for 13 years. And he has a, uh, an incredible story, a story that he's going to share with us, a story that I think is going to connect with a lot of you. You're going to hear a lot of uh, similar themes uh, in his talk, and, and hopefully uh, his, his authenticity and his honesty in how he ended up dealing with these issues uh, can help somebody out there today. This topic today is really on PTSD, on depression, and on suicide and those things that we need to be more aware of uh, as law enforcement officers. Uh, Sean will tell you that he himself uh, did not realize these things uh, when he was uh, young, early in his career, but that the cumulative stresses of this, coupled with some family dynamic, uh, left him to the point where uh, he was putting the gun in his mouth. And I know, uh, because of emails I've gotten, that based on the listeners, he's not alone. So there's someone out there who I know, I know, is going to listen to Sean's story and connect with it deeply. It's an important one, and I'm really happy to have Sean on. Uh, it was uh, an honor for him. He's in Australia, and uh, he's a cop in Australia. it was a cop in Australia. He's retired now. Um, it's like three 30 in the morning where he is when we did this, uh, interview and the poor guy got up in the middle of the night to, uh, to talk to me. And I am humbled by that commitment to him and his, his efforts in the strong life project, uh, podcast and in the Stronglifeproject.com to, uh, to, to help officers and help people who are struggling with some of these things. And then him really shining light on it and leading the way out of the darkness for a lot of people. So you can get more information on Sean at the end of this episode, and of course at thesquadron.net. It's a great conversation. So here we are, Sean O'Gorman of the Strong Life Project. Sean O'Gorman of the Strong Life Project, welcome to the show. Thanks, Garrett. So happy to be on. I'm excited to have you. You're my first international guest. Uh, uh, you know, I've, I've interviewed a lot of people, and um, surprisingly, to, surprisingly to me. Uh, I have, uh, the show has a good following in other uh, modern, westernized countries, such as yours, Australia, and uh, probably get, uh, next to the U.S., get more emails out of Australia than anywhere else, so it's fun to connect with um, someone who does this job on the exact opposite end of the world, uh, so thanks for being on. We have a lot to talk about today, but I just wanted to get out there that, um, yeah, you're all the way out there in Australia, and, um, and we connected... Uh, like people do these days social media it's amazing how we the two of us could have this conversation that started a couple of weeks ago uh having you know we have no connection to each other other than the uh our ability to get on social media and then our ability to both have a podcast that we can share it's pretty cool
1: mate that's look i'm ve- so happy to be on yeah, the air blows me away and that's um i found your podcast just through you know i listened to them myself and searching for police podcasts and found it man i think it's fantastic but to me it uh that's the thing that for me makes me so happy to be able to get this message out easily over the internet all over the world and uh, make a difference to people as much as we can so so happy to be here i think you do a fantastic job
0: likewise and uh, so sean's podcast is the strong life project and it's not just about law enforcement though it's obviously heavily related to that but i want we'll get to the strong life uh but i want to kind of tell your story in, in the continuity of of, of your story and the, the strong life is what you're doing now. But I want to go back and start with the fact that you were, you're a retired police officer in Australia and you did 13 years with a, a, an agency down there. Tell us about um, the time you did in service and what were your assignments and then what's the agency that, you're, that, that you dealt with or that you worked for? What was it like size and that sort of thing?
1: Yeah, sure, sure. So, we t- yeah, I joined the police. Uh, I'm 47 now. I was 19. My my dad was a cop for 42 years, so I was very much in my family. My uncle was a cop. So uh, the I joined in 1989 and left in 2002, so 13 years on the job, nine years of that as a canine handler. I had a couple of years in uh, covert surveillance, so I did a couple of different things, but majority is a canine handler, so on the street, general duties, what we call, what you guys call patrol, and in a town that's about 2.5 million people, and uh, so usually working the night shifts, working 8 p.m. to 4 a.m. or 8 to 6 a.m., and uh, all the, you know, what we call the hot jobs, like the first responder jobs of, you know, the fights and gun calls and domestic violence, et cetera, all of those sort of things. Mm -hmm. So, mate, yeah, I loved it. It was fantastic.
0: So let me ask a question that I'll admit that I don't know the answer to, uh, and I'm sure someone else is out there thinking that too, but – you know, I think you probably know more about American policing than I know about Australian policing. Is there a, is yeah. there a huge difference uh, in the in the type of environment and dynamic and the training?
1: No, look, I think um, from what I understand about law enforcement in the U.S., the probably difference for us is we don't have the same gun culture in Australia. So that's probably – that's the main difference I look at. But when I was on the job, we still uh, – we had a thing here called the Port Arthur Massacre in Tasmania of early 2000s when a guy uh, – killed a dozen or 15 people at a, at a tourist uh, resort, for want of yeah. a better place, a historical site. So yeah. our prime minister, like your president, at the time um, outlawed pretty much all firearms. So, you know, people on farms, and uh, they have they have firearms, but most people don't. Back when I was in the police, there was still a lot of illegal handguns and a lot of long arms. So the difference is probably we don't have the same amount of gun crime and the same interaction with, with firearms. But uh, apart from that, mate, pretty simple, pretty much the same things and the bad guys still have guns. You know, at the end of the day, we don't deal with uh, what I would presume you guys might get a domestic situation where somebody uh, has a fight with their wife and then it turns pretty serious because they have firearms involved. We don't have that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, out, outside of that, probably very similar.
0: It's neat to uh, hear, and, and we'll get to the, your book in a little bit too, but reading your book, how yeah, uh, some of the things are flipped back and forth, uh, <laughs> um, just like code two for you is lights and siren code three is no lights and siren and that's the opposite for us uh little things like that made me made me chuckle so you did your time um you uh your father was a police officer and so you grew up in that culture was it something that just from an early age you wanted to do or was it sort of that you got to your your late teens and just figured why not what what was it
1: no i might always wanted to do it so my dad uh he forty 42 years in the police, pretty highly decorated for bravery, and uh, he was the president of our police union, like a police association for a number of years looking after police. So from, from a very young age, mate, I always remember I was six years of age and I went to our police academy with uh, with my dad and he they had uh, the canine guys doing a display. And I remember there and then that day looking and thinking, yeah, that's what I want to do, be a canine handler. So that was sort of my focus my whole childhood and in my teenage years. Hence the reason I didn't study too hard at high school and uh, was by no meaning a, an academic or a scholar. And I join the job at 19, so I was always in my blood and and very much driven out of the, the same reason I do strong life and the same reason I wrote my book is just I want to help people and make a difference. As naive as that sounds, I think that's why a lot of guys get on the job and girls get on the job is just to try and help people.
0: Do you think – you know? it's funny you said that, as naive as it sounds, but um, at 47 years old, I don't think – is it naive anymore or is it – <clears throat> are we just, are we still holding on to something? I, I find that a lot of us, a lot of officers, you know, we, we still have this desire to help people, and we want to be the hero for other people, right? And, and not from Absolutely. a narcissistic standpoint, in some sense, but in that sheepdog sense, right? And so I wonder sometimes are are we um, are we just being altruistic, or are we in fact uh, right, and everyone else is just the pessimist? You know what I mean?
1: Absolutely, mate. Yeah, and that's that's such an interesting thing, Garrett, because I absolutely believe that it's such a noble profession. Like police and military, such a noble profession. And any first responders, you no know, paramedics, ambulance, fire, sure. everybody's the same. But I think that it's one of the things that I'm really passionate about getting out and why I do what I do now is because we should be celebrating that. You know, people who get on the job because they want to help people and make a difference, and as you say, be the hero for other people in such a humble sense, should be celebrated. But unfortunately, certainly here in Australia, and, and I think for you guys in the States and around the world, it's something we're almost a bit embarrassed to say, a bit embarrassed to say, look, I want to help people and make a difference. That's my purpose in life. And, and I live by that. And I find the more that I um, come out of the closet with that, as funny as that sounds, and say, that's what I really want to do with my life is help people and make a difference. People love that people, they, they relate to it, and they appreciate it. But we've got a thing we call here, the tall poppy syndrome. And and, uh, you know, people who stick their head above the crowd and want to do more than the normal person get cut down. I'm sure you guys are probably not dissimilar. For me, the big thing is going, if we can all be embracing that fact that it's about helping people making a difference, that's why we got on the job, that's why we did all those things, then it, it uh, allows people to step into that and you're not trying to, you know, fit an identity or fit something that other people want. Because at the end of the day, what other people think really shouldn't matter, but it does.
0: Yeah. you know, <clears throat> You just hit something right there that could have been the podcast itself, this whole episode, because I was having this conversation with uh, with my friend Traver, who's, who's been a co-host of this show at at times, and we were chatting back and forth one day, and I was describing this awkwardness I felt, you know, like we all do, a lot of us do, about the fact that we're in law enforcement, and especially in these times, especially in the U.S., where there's a lot of contentious relationships between the the cops and the public right now,
1: absolutely. And yeah.
0: we're getting further and further apart, and we're kind of intentionally building walls between each other. So I was describing mm-hmm. how this this kind of culture and attitude is 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 affecting me, and he said uh, that it sounded like I was ashamed of being a cop. Mm-hmm. And though I, certainly shame isn't the right word, it was a it was an interesting point because it, here I am wanting to. Be that guy, be that hero, be go out and help people, yeah. and but I but I wasn't okay talking about it or 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 looking like I was being puffing my chest out and 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 and, and trying to be that hero in the um, narcissistic sense, right? In the look at me sense, um, and I think coming to terms with that difference is a big deal, and it's important, uh, you know, in order to talk about being a police officer out in public. With some confidence that you're that you're on the right side of history, does that make sense?
1: Absolutely, and Matt, I think you know, going back to my experience, and and uh, also you know I've got a lot of friends who are still on the job here. And the thing that I find really interesting, and even just when I see police in my day to day life, you know, like I I'll, I'll train in the morning, go and have a coffee at a particular coffee shop, and often there's uh, officers there, and you can see they're often almost. Embarrassed might not be the word, but they're hesitant to make eye contact with people or interact because they're so used to, similar to you guys over there, so used to people, you know, being negative towards place. And I think a big part of that that I realised after I left the job was you only see people at their worst. And one of my favourite sayings is I I, I say, when was the last time you guys, you know, any of you guys? or we got in our patrol car, went around and knocked on someone's door and said, hey, you're having the best day of your life, just thought we'd drop in and say hi. You know, it never (laughs) happens, right? (laughs) Right. So you only ever see people at their worst. So they're either, you know, as as an offender or as the victim of a crime or you're delivering a death message or they're in a traffic accident or something horrific, right? So you see them at their worst. So I very much got to the point in my life where I used to look at people, anybody who didn't wear a uniform to me was just not a great human being. I had such a cynical and, and twisted perception of humanity in general and I think that therefore has you very isolated from general society and you are very much ring-fenced then with other cops. All you talk about is police work, all or you, or you interact about is, you know, how, how shit you think society is and how bad people are or whatever that may go in that conversation. So... Of course, inevitably, you don't want to say, tell people you're a cop or you don't want to own that, um, want to be a hero and help people because you feel embarrassed and a lot of what obviously media portrays is that, you know, cops are heavy-handed and they do this and they do that and, and you know, I spent, you know, obviously nine years in the, in the canine unit doing heaps of you know, pretty violent jobs and, and, you know, probably in a couple of fistfights a week and and, you know, had a number of, you know, excessive force complaints from offenders. We went through a real period there when I was in the police that uh, every criminal defence lawyer, when you'd catch somebody for a violent crime, would say, look, put a complaint against the officer because it discredits them when you get to court. So I had probably seven years of complaints and I wasn't heavy handed by any means. I was certainly very um, enthusiastic in the way I did my duties and I loved being a cop. So I, was, you know, I, went, I went very hard. But so, mate, you are very much getting to that point, I think, where we're scared to own it and... I find now the sad part, and I've been out of the police 15 years, one of the reasons I'm so passionate about doing what I'm doing now is I'm more proud of being a cop now that I'm, I've left than I was when I was a cop, and I think that's a pretty sad thing.
0: Yeah, but it's nice that you have the perspective going being able to go back on that. So I want to talk about um, a little bit about the book you're writing right now because it's about your time in the police service <clears throat> and the things that uh, occurred before and during that have brought you now to where you're at. And I think it's important to get that context. So, but in this book, and you were kind enough to give me an advanced copy of it, which I, which I read. And you talk about this character. You have this character in this book called The Dark Companion. And I was, I'm hoping you can uh, tell people uh, what, what that is.
1: Yeah, sure. So I called the book The Dark Companion after, probably I was three quarters of the way through writing it. The Dark Companion is that i I got to the point of uh, PTSD, depression, suicide, clinical depression, suicide, so I was in a really bad spot. And it came about because of all the incidents I'd been to, all the things I'd seen, I was so enthusiastic and loved the job so much that uh, I went to everything I could get to. And the dark companion was just that the only way that I could describe it, like the depression or the sadness, the suicidal thoughts, the hopelessness, the feeling of overwhelm that I experienced often that it just felt like I just had this dark shadow follow me around. So hence the reason it's called The Dark Companion. The thing that um, I find really ironic now is I'm so happy to talk about it and, you know, obviously get on an international podcast with someone like yourself and spill my guts on a story that I would never have even told anyone about for that whole time in my career. I told nobody that it even existed and hence the reason it got to the point where it got to. So the only time I felt really good when I was in the police, and this sort of from when I when I first joined, it was pretty good. But as it went on, it got it got worse. Was when I was going your code three, our code two or one, lights and sirens on the way to a, a hot job, something violent where I could make a difference, and I didn't have time to be in my mind and be have the fears, doubts, insecurities about what I was doing. It was just pure purely instinctual. So when I'm running on that gut instinct driving, you know, a thousand miles an hour, lights and sirens, so going to a job or go with a gun or something, you know, whatever it might be, armed hold ups or vehicle shoots, that's when I was at my most comfortable and I felt felt awesome because I didn't have time to think about that. So the dark opinion really is just that dark thoughts, the fears, the doubts, the stuff that you wrap up in your own mind about how you're reacting to your job, how you're doing your job, are you doing it well, are you not, all of those things that I think everybody experiences. And that just sort of sat with me. So that's that's what I came to call it. I didn't call it that at the time, but now I look back, that's absolutely what it was.
0: Was this something that you, that that came with you before the job? You think, or that started maybe before the job? Some of the, was there a predisposition towards these insecurities and fears that you, that came with you? Because we all have those, right? I mean, absolutely, right? it's part yeah, of just definitely. growing up.
1: Mate, there, I think that. Sorry, might I cut you off. No, no, go ahead. Definitely, there was, and I. Th- retrospectively it came a lot from my dad like we've got the the good irish catholic background so that comes with uh with all its own demons and and insecurities and things so that's pretty standard dad um obviously a cop for 42 years saw a lot of him he uh had to take someone's life taking a suspect's life in in an incident in 1978 so i think a lot of my stuff probably was almost um hereditary or handed down from his experience and because i loved look, I worship my dad from from being the copy he was, he's just an amazing guy, that I look at that and think I probably took a lot of it on from him and that's not a criticism of him at all. I think it's actually a bit of a testament to the sort of character he is. So I sort of always had it there. But again, like you said, we all have it. We all have those same fears, doubts, insecurities. We all have those, the dark places in our minds we go to and it may not be as severe where you get to suicide. I don't think that's, you know, everybody has that I think it's probably a lot more often than than people admit but it's something that we all carry with it so I definitely had it before the job and when I talk to people about this stuff and obviously I do all the time I think if I had have had the tools and strategies before I went into the police or as I joined the police to understand that that was just very normal and if I also was able to process the things as I went to each incident or through things that had an impact on me in the job. And probably the thing that had the biggest impact was dealing with the department. So it's the you old, know, you want to go out to a great job and go 100 miles an hour and do your best. And then, you know, I used to uh, be renowned for driving pretty pretty fast. So, you know, I'd burn out, burn out you know, blow up police cars or burn out brake pads or, you know, crash them and all those sort of things. So you, you've got all that administrative sort of uh, stress on top. To learn how to deal with all of that so that it, the turmoil you see, your bucket doesn't get full. So like there's a bucket that carries all the shit that you get in your life and if your bucket is full with normal life stress, marriages, whatever whatever it is that's going on, then you add policing on top of that. No wonder you have, you know, police have an adverse reaction.
0: How how long into your service did you begin to, maybe you probably didn't recognize it at the time, but maybe now, how far in were you when you started to see these changes?
1: Probably only three or four years, five years. I I had a significant incident in um, about five years in, i talk about in the book, where we were involved in a uh, vehicle pursuit with two guys who fired multiple shots and um, they had a three hundred three rifle and a two two three rifle and and they actually went out with uh, the purpose of suicide by cop. So obviously we didn't know at the time. Ended up in a pretty serious pursuit with them and I ended up in a foot chase through a... uh, like a mall area, so um, a nightclub restaurant sort of precinct on a Monday night and chased him down around the corner and they both shot themselves right in front of me, so, you know, only a few, few metres away. And that obviously had a pretty big impact, but at the time I didn't realise. So I was only 24 or something when that happened. So, f- and I think without that sort of major incident, and there was plenty of other, you know, obviously violent incidents, but nothing that significant. That probably put, you know, who knows, 10 years or five years worth of stress on me in one day, and I didn't recognise it at the time. I just brushed it off, and a lot of those things about not wanting to be weak, not wanting to look like a coward, so I didn't get help for it. I actually avoided the whole job, and it's ironic. I spoke to a uh, another retired police officer, a, a woman, the other day, and she uh, I hadn't seen her for years, and she reached out to me, heard I'd, I was writing the book, and and talked about the incident she was involved in, and she she said to me, she said, yeah I, uh, we didn 't see you after the incident, so I avoided the whole thing. so in hindsight, I avoided it because of the impact, and I just buried it. But I think that was probably the critical one, and that may well have been why, after thirteen years, I ended up where I was, but regardless, Garrett, I think I would have ended up there at some point because it's a it 's a cumulative effect every incident you see, everything that happens." Sort of puts a little bit more shit in that bucket if you like mm-hmm. and and it may well be you relate to it because you know there might be a nine year old girl involved in a that's in the domestic violence and you have a nine year old daughter it might be you know whatever there could be any anything that's relatable back to you and makes the people involved more human has that effect and something um you know I do work with, with different people a lot and uh, I was working with a a guy who's now good a usc fighter here from australia and he's an ex uh serviceman ex ex soldier went to afghanistan and i spoke to him and i said mate look i'll look at it like this if what we see and do doesn't affect you at all then be more concerned because that shows that that you know you're very you're very disconnected and this sounds pretty harsh to say but i think uh if you never you're not affected at all by what you do as a police officer or a soldier or a first responder then you potentially might want to go and get checked out for being a sociopath because it's just you know that something, something that I think has to occur unfortunately
0: yeah that's a very good point what i mean what were your coping mechanisms back in that at that time did you i mean was it what what were you doing to deal with this at all I mean maybe you actually were avoiding it but what what did you think you were doing to to deal with yeah, this yes alcohol yeah. so the
1: truth truth of the matter is yeah alcohol self medication and uh so I was involved in a group of guys, um, there was probably fifteen or twenty of us who were, you know, in our early twenties, all in in the job together at that point. So we worked very hard and we parted really hard. So we worked ten days straight, then go and, and drink for two or three days. I wasn't married, didn't have kids. So I was just very much party town and in those days mate, people, um young ladies loved cops. So, yeah, you know, we were pretty arrogant and pretty cocky and so it was pretty much what we did. And so when I look back now, that's that really was it. Like hanging out with my mates and talking about it, like telling war stories, mm-hmm. and we're very much about you know, so it was either on the job talking about the job, reliving the reliving what we did, and drinking and partying. So it was um, probably not the best coping mechanism, but that was certainly it.
0: That's a popular one for us too, isn't it? I mean, absolutely. You go out and and yeah, you, you share beers, you talk about it, you re- you basically rehash it, bring it up again. Yeah, uh, yeah. And then you have this, uh, and then a common one, you know. And then we always like to one up each other with the best cop story, and and you're basically sharing <laughs> someone right. else's trauma experience as well. I mean, you write in the book that you, eventually, by the time you got to your mid twenties, you didn't think you were going to live past thirty, and no, Matt, that's right, and that you you almost had a death wish. Uh, you know what? What made you think that you weren't going to make it to thirty?
1: Matt, I think it was just the um, the reality of the job I was doing and the way I was doing it as in I just lived and breathed it. I loved it so much that I just thought if you look at it from a almost a statistical point of view, the reality of it is that I'm probably gonna get killed in a car accident, in in, you know, a mm-hmm. violent incident with a shootout with an offender. Or it would get to the point because I knew I knew I wasn't handling it that well. And and it you know, when even when I reread the book, it's it's Obviously, I was going through dark times, but not every day was bad, right? So there were so m- m- far more good days than bad. But when the when the bad days were bad, I was like, I just couldn't see myself living in, you know, forty, fifty, sixty years of my life in that same headspace. Mm-hmm. So one way it was like there's probably a reality of me getting killed in the line of duty, as you know, a number of police officers in, in the department I worked for did. And the other side of it was going well, and if that happens, then I'm probably okay with that because I'm living the dream now, and if it's going to keep getting worse, then this is you know go out with a bang sort of thing
0: yeah, you talk about the, the idea that you kind of you like the idea of being um martyred for the cause of protecting other people
1: yeah absolutely Matt, and and it's i'm it's it so it sounds so strange when you when you sort of quote it back to me actually because it's it, to me, I was so driven and all I wanted to do was help people make a difference. All I wanted to do was be a fantastic cop and, and really stand on that thin blue line, right? And mm-hmm. when, I left, when I left the police, the biggest thing I struggled with was giving up that space on the thin blue line between the good guys and, and the bad guys. And uh, I'm sure the, the police on your podcast can relate to it. And I think probably the public might think that's a bit of a weird thing to say, but it really that's, that's sort of how it felt. And that part of it for me was was understanding that I was giving my best, and the best thing I was in my life was a cop. The best things I'd achieved in my life was you know police work. So if I was to die doing something that I loved, and die protecting other people, and die doing some good, then that was a sacrifice I was willing to make.
0: You know, talk too about um, how even though you and you eventually, so you wanted to be a cannon handler since you were a little kid, you eventually get that job. There's 43 dogs in your 6,000 member department, if I'm correct. If sure. I remember. yep. And even with that dream job that you've worked for the whole time, like like many things in life, we we finally get it, we attain it, and realize that's not what's going to make us happy after all, anyway. Um, and it sounds like in in reading from your book and talking to you that you were beginning to feel like your align your your beliefs and values weren't in alignment anymore. And we talk about that frequently on this show. What was it about the job that you were becoming less fulfilled by, and what were you searching for?
1: Yeah, it's, it's um, touch on something that you just said then about like it was very much once I get that I'll be happy. That's a bit of was a recurring theme in my life. So once I'm a canine handler, then everything will be fantastic. But the problem was it, I had the job I loved, but I still thought the same way and had the same sort of uh, insecurities or whatever. The thing that I found, I be, just became jaded and cynical with the job because. I went into it with such an altruistic view of just being able to help people and make a difference no matter what. Mm-hmm. And then I ended up in an environment created by myself where, you know, there was, um, there's a couple of incidents i talk about in the book that where, you know, I was tasked to go to, to particular incidents where people are in trouble or, you know, there's potential violence and it's a, for for us, like a code three job. So like for you guys, I don't know what you call it, but like just drive normally, no lights and sirens, no priority driving, nothing. and And then you Know this is the battle I have for that, and I would still go priority lights and sirens, and therefore I'd get myself in trouble with the department. Then, you know, I'd get to the job, and there'd be offenders who had um who were violent and had you know committed some pretty horrific crimes against people. And then, in the process of arresting them, obviously they don't just give up, put their hands up, and go, Oh, yeah, thanks, uh, I'm happy to come with you. So, we'd end up in some violent, violent um, struggles, and invariably they get injured, and you know, I'd, I'd get injured, or I'd use the dog, put the dog on them, or whatever. And then complaints and so where i I just struggled in my probably naivety at that point to go you know we're supposed to be here helping people protecting them on that thin blue line but the harder i work and the more people i lock up and the better a job i do the more shit i get in so it just started to really unravel that whole belief and that that my belief not in what i did but my belief in and the ability for other people in the public or the department or whatever to understand how important it was mm-hmm. and how important it was that there were guys out there doing the job that, you know, as, as I've heard you talk about on your podcast before, other people don't want to do. And unfortunately, the people who criticize cops, the worst, I believe, are the people who would never have the courage to put on a uniform and go and do it themselves.
0: Mm-hmm. I agree 100%. So do you think, was it just a frustration then, an ang- kind of an, a, general, a generalized anger at the fact that people don't understand what we're dealing with?
1: Absolutely, mate. very much. So it started in frustration, got to anger pretty quickly. And then again, what I touched on earlier about then isolating yourself in that you only hang out with cops, you only talk to cops, you only talk about police work. So it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy mm-hmm. of, you know, the more they hate us, the more we stick together. The more they hate us, the more we stick together. It just becomes almost a vicious circle.
0: Yeah, which is really the exact opposite of what we need to be doing, right? Um, Absolutely, as 100%. A, yeah. But it's, it's hard. Man, it's, it's so hard on an individual level, on an organization level, on a, even on a squad level, of just a, a couple patrol guys. You, know, you, you, make a, you said a great thing earlier about the eye contact in a, in a coffee shop or whatnot and, you know, that awkwardness there. But we mm-hmm. have to be the ones we, – we've, we've put on the uniform and we've sworn to uphold the law. But so, so we have – my belief is we have an obligation to be the first to extend our hand and, you know, offer a handshake.
1: And that's the – and, yeah, absolutely. It's funny. I was at um – I've got a good friend of mine, and she's a, a retired cop, and she's now a firefighter, and uh, we've been friends for about five years. She finally courses. made a good
0: decision. She made a good decision. Yeah, <laughs> that's right.
1: Yeah, exactly. So she's – um we were sitting at a coffee shop yesterday just having, having a, a chat, and uh, four four guys turned up from what we call a, the public safety response team, so like uh, the riot squad sort of thing. So they're uh, – and they're, they're tasked to do general patrols, and they're fully kitted up, you know, and they look uh, – very SWAT-esque, very Stormtrooper-esque, and they've sort of walked into the coffee shop and she's introduced me to one of them and I was looking at the other three guys who were standing back and it just struck me. I thought, wow, they are so defensive in in their energy or their attitude towards people. And so it's no wonder cops end up in a space, and I get it, I absolutely get it, where they feel as though everybody's against them because these guys were standing back and even to me, and I, you know, I love police, and I love, I love what the job stands for. And I'm looking at them, going, even I look at them and go, wow, they looked really arrogant and really unapproachable mm-hmm. because obviously they're defensive. So therefore, that same vicious circle starts, or vicious cycle starts, where a member of the public's probably not going to have the courage to walk up and talk to them. So they, yeah, the cops then see that. So the member of the public's looking, at who, how does it start? Who knows? But the chicken and the egg, the member of the public's looking at the police officer thinking no way am I going near that guy or girl because they just look like they're, they're angry and, and uh, you know, I'm going to get my head bitten off if I do. And then the cops looking at the members of the public and see they don't give a shit about us. They don't even look at us. They won't even come anywhere near us. Right. So, and it builds this massive void that um, then, I believe, gets filled and perpetuated by media because it's great to sell papers. That's controversial. And then, you know, other organisations, and I'm no, no good mentioning them on your podcast. I don't want to give them any airplay, but, you know, people who are then... With the advent of social media, we talked before, such a fantastic thing for guys like you and I to be able to connect and make a difference across the globe. But unfortunately, then every idiot who's got uh, his opinion and hides in his mum's cupboard with his uh, keyboard can also get on there and you know, put their opinions to law enforcement what police should do. So it's just it's a difficult thing.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny too. As we're having this conversation, I have uh, two guys who just got assigned to my squad fresh off training, you know, so they just finished the academy, they just finished their field training, and now they're, they just finished their first week with me, and I love having you guys on my squad, but I remember in that time, you know, going through the academy, they would run you through scenarios, and almost always it turned into a deadly force or a yes. officer safety situation, right, it was never... I never went through a scenario in training in the academy where I was standing in a coffee shop and someone came up to shake my hand, <laughs> yeah, say, thank you, good job, and then walk away, right? There was always the yeah. scenario where the guy came up to shake my hand and then pulls a knife out of his back, you know? Yeah, so we awesome. predispose ourselves to this defensiveness, too, which is important from a safety standpoint. But, you know, I, I, I watch the new guys. Now that I have the perspective of a decade later, I, I watch the new guys in the perspective, and they're kind of, you know, shuffle-stepping to everything, <laughs> you know, to, yeah, to all contacts, yeah. and they're having a conversation with a victim with their arms up, or their hands up yeah, uh, in front of their right. face, right, just ready for that attack from grandma, who just got her car yeah. broken into, it takes a long time to break that down, right, and and the public doesn't know that this guy's got exactly 48 hours on the street versus a decade, um, yeah. of course, the criminals know, they know right away, <laughs> Yeah,
1: that's <laughs> the,
0: right. The, the, the criminals know right away who's the rookie and who's the vet, but the general public, the people who aren't committing crimes, they have no idea, and so... You got someone who's on their first day, eyes wide open, scared to death, <laughs> and trained that everyone's out there to hurt you. Uh, that interaction has to be as quality with the public as mine does. Ten years later, where you know I, I'm able to see a little bit more color in the picture. It's challenging. It's a real challenge.
1: And man, I thought, and, and the irony of it is for for police is that every member of the public judges every person in uniform as the whole, right? So right. every cop, if we, and, and there's bad apples, you know, people make mistakes, people do silly things. So, uh, and, you know, I generally look around and go, there's a great percentage of society who don't, um, who aren't that effective in their lives, and that's, that's who police get recruited from, so we're all going to have our idiosyncrasies and we're all going to make our mistakes, right? Right. But the problem is we get judged, or police get judged by people, every cop gets judged by every other cop in uniform anywhere in the world, We don't judge the general public by every member of the public, so and nor nor ever could you. So, but the thing that I find, and big reason why I'm doing this, mate. And obviously, I've written the first book and I've just finished my second one, I've knocked that over in like the last eight weeks. And that's um, that one's called Surviving the Job That's Trying to Kill You, and that's about these sort of things, you know. So, a lot of that is about I talk about training and a lot of stuff you're about, mate, like training and nutrition, sleep, hygiene, and blah blah blah, but also. Talking about those sort of things, what I call the prehabilitative. We have rehabilitation if you hurt yourself. Prehabilitation that um, is about how cops learn early on about this sort of exactly these sort of things. So the sort of things you don't get taught in the academy. The sort of things we all instinctively learn and subconsciously use. Like as as a sergeant on a squad with ten years on the job, you've got so much amazing knowledge that you don't even know you have, and the difficulty that is for us to be able to transfer that knowledge. Someone like me, and I'm in a very unique position of having had 13 years on the job, having had you know, 47 years of, of very intimate contact with the police through, through my dad, that I see it from all angles now. And, and having been out in the normal corporate world for 15 years, the thing that people still are the most interested in about, about me when they meet me or talk to me is that I used to be a cop. And like even now, and they all go, you know, it's, oh, it's an awesome job, why... You know, I couldn't do it. You know, you guys do a great job, and and I feel quite, quite weird about it because I'm like, well, I've been out of it now longer than I was in it. Mm -hmm. When they call you guys, or even you might notice that I change tense on whether I say you or us, even in this podcast, because I feel that's you know, sort of to me, I go, well, who am I now to be commenting on police officers and their work? I don't even do it anymore. But all of those things to me, mate, is is being able to explain to you know young officers. And old officers, you know, like guys who are good friends of mine. I've got a great mate of mine who's um, an officer in charge of a station here. It's probably got 80 or 100 staff. And uh, I was chatting to him. I sent him a transcript of my, my second book uh, a couple of days ago. And he's a really funny guy. And he uh, he's, he's what I would call fairly emotionally distant and uh, by his own admission – and when I sent him my first book, and obviously you've read it, you know, there's a bit of stuff in there about my, my the relationship with Dad and I and, and different things, and he, uh, I sent it to him and about 15 minutes later, I got a text message back from him. He said, started reading your book, bought up too much stuff about me and my old man, so now I'm playing Xbox. You know, We both, we all know what I'm like. You know, so he's not by any means any guy who's in a personal development, whatever. And he, um, he rang me and said, who – I don't want this to sound like I'm trying to uh, blow my own trumpet by any means, but he rang and said – who wrote this for you? And I said, I wrote it. And he goes, did you have a ghostwriter? I said, no. He goes, oh, man. He said, it's brilliant. It reads so well. He said, even someone, his words, as emotionally retarded as I am, read this. He goes, this is brilliant. He goes, I could see how so many cops can get so much out of it. He goes, I've only read two or three chapters. And he said, it's simple stuff that I know but I've never thought of. So to me, it's that sort of stuff, Garrett. It's the guys that, you know, it's it's actually having that conversation. Go, You know what? You're going to go to coffee shops and, you you know, you might go to the to, to a snack bar or to the supermarket to get something for dinner or whatever, and when people look at you, they're looking at you out of admiration. 90% of people admire cops and and they're so happy cops are around and 90% of kids at some point want to be a cop or a fireman. And so if if police were able to embrace that, trust themselves in their operational skills and knowledge to know when it's a threat or not, but actually sort of, uh, as Dr. Phil as this sounds, you know, drop the walls a bit and invite a bit more of that interaction and conversation, then you'd find that the public would react so much better. It's the old vocal minority as opposed to the silent majority. The great majority of people that I find now that I'd speak to anywhere love cops. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they all say the same insecurities or fears that the the cop has about talking to the member of the public, it's probably 10 times more for the other way around because they don't want to annoy them or they don't want to, you know, nobody has a great
0: friendly interaction. Right. Yeah. So, uh, talk about the mask. What was the mask?
1: Yeah, ma- then, yeah, fantastic. That's the that's probably the biggest message. The, it's the mask we all wear as cops because you've always got to be on your game. You've always got to be the alpha male or female. You've always got to be in control. You've always got to be the one that has no fear. In inverted commas. So as you said before, you know the uh, the criminal always knows who's the rookie and who's the vet on the street. So from the minute you pull the uniform on, five minutes into your first shift. You've got to have that persona that you just that you're hard as nails and you don't give a shit. Nothing scares you, and, the, and and you need that. That's just an operational reality. The problem is for me, I never turned that off. So the the normal, you know, like I talk about the normal fears or doubts or insecurities about who you are and what you're doing that everybody has in their life. I think it's just a human condition. I then wrap that around this um, persona of being this hard ass cop. And then being in the canine unit, as you said, there was 43 out of 6,000, so it was pretty hard to get into at that time and I was lucky enough to get in. Then we were, it's different now, but at that time, we were were the only cops on the street dressed tactically, so we had like the swat sort of uniform and drop holsters and those sort of things. So, you know, we we looked at goods from that tactical point of view, stood out very much from other police who were dressed like more of a dress uniform now, Mm -hmm. uh, sorry, back then. So you really were looked, you, you stood out. You worked one up, so you know I always worked on my own with the dog, never had a partner or rarely, rarely had a partner. You went from job to job at 100 miles an hour and often took control of those situations because you're doing so many of them. The uh, other general patrol guys sort of looked to us to take control of it. So it was not only just a persona to the public, it was a persona to other police, and and I never learned how to turn that off. So the funny thing was as life went on, and I only realised this in hindsight, as life went on, I was like I always say I was like I was like the skinny nineteen year old kid inside and outside I built like the Superman, you know, um mask uh-huh. which had me look to other people like I knew what I was doing, had me look like I was very brave and courageous and nothing scared me, but that just wasn't the case. And now I realize and I've had so many of these chats with other police that um I worked with and they say to me, mate, you know, like we and guys who've read my book, you know, I've I've sent it to a number of them for their input. And they're like, they said, you know, we would never have guessed any of that. Never have guessed that you were so, that you had those fears and doubts inside and that insecurity. And I said, oh yeah, like it used to eat me up. And they're like, yeah, me too. I was exactly the same. Mm -hmm. So every one of them I've spoken to, some of the hardest guys I know, the toughest men I know, exactly the same. But here we all were walking around with this mask on, pretending that nothing gets to you, pretending that nothing bothers you, pretending that nothing scares you. So I'll be driving you know 100 miles an hour to a, a literally 100 miles an hour using your using the imperial <laughs> system mate. I, I did a bit of conversion thank you for converting on. <laughs> yeah. driving 100 miles an hour lights and sirens on my own and and going to you know whatever it might be a, a, a and someone a barricaded suspect with with a firearm in a domestic situation or you know armed hold up or whatever and going there so quickly and i'd get there and like there'd be smoke coming off the the, the tires off the brakes of my car and the, the engine would stink and and I'd skid to a halt, you know, tire squealing because I thought that was pretty and I thought that was cool, you know, Let, let's face it, everybody likes to to have that sort of uh, experience. And and so the guys would look at me and think, wow, this guy's really got it under control. But inside I was terrified. Mm-hmm. Now inside I'm going to the job really very and terrified it's probably overstating. Very scared of what the fuck am I going to get here? And can I handle it? Mm-hmm. Because you know, am I going to turn up and this guy's going to be firing shots? And am I gonna freeze? Am I gonna be able to get through it? Is that what's gonna happen? And so I built the mask and built the mask, and I never froze once. I never backed off once. And to my own detriment in the end for my own mental health, but it wasn't the jobs that affected me. It was the mask because then then I felt like a fraud. And then and the biggest thing to me is honor and loyalty and honesty. And so then I felt like a fraud because then I'm thinking these people, these police, perceive me a certain way to be quite courageous and brave and whatever. Their words, not mine. And here I am, knowing that in my head I'm really pretty insecure and, and I get scared going to these jobs and I have fear and not realizing that was just a normal reaction, right? Because uh-huh. I've grown up with with my old man, who you know, same thing, hard as nails, cop, very, very well known for his bravery in our department. Was was you know at that time would certainly have been the best known cop in our whole department of six thousand and. Uh, so coming in on the back of that reputation too, certainly in hindsight had its, um, had its challenges and we were both very similar. And him and I have had those those chats since and parts of it he disagrees with, but there's other parts and he's 71 now and uh, parts of it that he's like, yeah, mate, he goes, I'll be going to those jobs really f- quite fearful, but the overriding drive and mine was the same was I have got to get there no matter what and risk my own personal safety because someone needs us. And if I don't go, then who's going?
0: If not me, then who, right? Absolutely. So, you know, it's one of those, again, it goes back to our training, too, that command presence they teach you. of. Of. I mean, I remember in the academy there was some comment, I'm shortening it, but the comment was, you know, if you get somewhere and you don't know what to do, make something up and just act like <laughs> yeah. And just look like you know what you're doing. Because half the time looking like you know what you're doing is going to convince somebody to follow your instructions, you know, or your orders. Um. So... Yeah, they they actually teach you to put on that mask, and there's not a lot of discussion about how to take it off on a daily basis. Do you think that just debriefing calls and and being a- if you were able to acknowledge at the end of a call like that, you got your your squad together, your buddies together, and meant you know we're able to say that was that was sketchy, that was that was gonna get that could have gotten that could have gone gnarly, and I was a little I was a little scared. How about you guys? And and if if we were able to share that, do you think that alone might have been? Uh, a, a factor that might have prevented some of the things that came after this.
1: Hundred percent, Yep, definitely. And that's the thing that I find. Again, I talk about irony a lot, but it's the ironic part to think that there might have been six or eight guys and girls there at that incident that um, felt exactly the same thing. You know, there was. Uh, I remember a particular one, and I, and I think I think it's one I talk about in the book, but it's a. Um, uh, basically, it was there's a party or. or the call came over a barricaded suspect, firing shots, had hostages. I got to the job and, very long story short, I ended up taking two detectives with me and we went to just to go and do a, a recce, a reconnaissance of the place and the what well, we have an inspector probably, I would know, like your your captain or someone or patrol sergeant, whoever was running the scene, he said, you know, I'd, all you are to do is go and look and I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So I take two guys with me and we get around the corner and they're like, we're not just looking, are we? I'm like, no, no way. So we sort of get there, look at it. He's he's fired a couple of shots out of the house. There's nothing going on at that point. And we're at the front and there's these two guys with me and they're, and they're really tough men. And I remember so vividly, I remember thinking to myself, I don't want to go into that house, but now I have to because I'm the one they're looking at. I'm the one who said, look, I'll take the guys and do the reconnaissance. I'm the one who's, who's now here. And, you know, tactically, worst thing I could have done, professionally I probably should have just contained and called out, but I was like, you know what, we've got to go in because if this guy has got a gun, he has got hostages, I don't know what he's doing and we don't even know the situation. So we went, kicked in the door, made entry and, and um, the guy, guy ran down the hallway, I chased him, tackled him and he was going for a gun under the bed. turns out it was just a drug party and he was firing shots in the air because he was off his face. Mm-hmm. Now, the, I look back now and just think, well, the, it turned out well and instinct, you know, my instinct and everything kicked in and, we, and the job turned out fine but – one of the things that drove me to go through that door was the fear of what people would think if I didn't. And I think that's part of that mask, you know, like there's, there's far smarter ways to do our job if you're tactically sound and confident in yourself to go, you know what, let's not go yet. And it's something that I've noticed and, and, you know, I've never worked in the, in the US as a, as an officer, but it seems you guys and, and certainly the, I find the department I'm in now, the guys I talk to they're more and more like it like we got very little tactical training. I did a bit a fair bit of work with our SWAT team and so got picked up stuff from them. But the idea for you guys to stage away from an area if you can and go in on mass more tactically and the and those sort of things to me just makes a lot more sense where back you know so you know we're talking a long time ago now too, like night in the early nineties we um we probably ran into a lot of situations headlong because there was. A group of us, we we're young guys, we're all alpha males, we're all pretty arrogant, cocky, no one wants to look soft. So everybody gets spurred to go because nobody's got the guts to put their hand up and go, hang on a minute, let's slow down and actually do this properly. And then that's where the mask comes in. If one person has the courage to say, you know what, I'm actually really struggling here, these these things are really worrying me or, you know, you know this job, you know, that job we went to last week or, as you say, at the end of the call, now, whether it's at the end of you, you might do 10 shifts in a row or five shifts in a row and you you go out for a few beers or whatever it is and actually have those chats. And then to me, I think it's, if nothing else I can achieve out of doing what I'm doing for police and, and military for soldiers, I think very similarly, is just to go, you know what? Everybody, look at the guy on your left and the guy on your right. They're all in a similar situation. They're all affected by what they see. They all have these fears and doubts. Talk about them. And the thing that I've... I've actually sort of grabbed hold of very strongly more recently is the guys that talk, it, talk you down, the guys that want to point out the people who they consider a weak or, you know, if I was, if you and I were working together in a squad and there's six guys there and I say, you know what, I'm, I was really a bit worried about that job. As you said, it was a bit sketchy and um, I, was, I was a bit scared going into it. The guy who mouths off the loudest and says, no way, mate, I never get scared. What are you talking about? You're a pussy. He's the one who's struggling the most. And that's the part that I find if we can sort of just open that door and go, "You know what? talking about this stuff is is absolutely essential for all of us to be better because I know I go now, if I talked about this stuff, I'd still be a cop and and I don't have any regrets around it because I've had the experience now to be able to help other people with it, but how many great you know officers are lost who could still be on the job with great levels of experience?" But they go because they just don't talk about stuff. And, you know, we've had a a huge um, spate here in the last few years of police suicide, and I know you guys are very similar. Mm. And to me, that is just such a tragedy to think that somebody who belongs to such, you know, to the band of blue, to the band of brothers, somebody who belongs to such a strong fraternity of, of men and women who would do anything to have your back doesn't feel a confidence to be able to speak out about things that are troubling them. It breaks my heart because you think those guys could have so easily been looked after. And when I got to the point, you know, of lying in bed three nights in a row with a Glock in my hand, and then the next time I was at a party and, I, and long story, but I ended up on the outside of a balcony for like 20 minutes, 24 or 26 floors up. I can never remember how many. The biggest thing was the fear of what people would th- would think of me because I was weak was going to drive me to that point. Now, you know, thank God I didn't do it and whatever stopped me, the if I just had those conversations and other people around me were like, you know what? Yeah, I'm the same. I feel the same fear, the same, whatever. Then I would have been so, so good to go and get help and do whatever needed to be done and, and move on. And to me, that's probably, that's the biggest thing with the mask. You know, it, uh, it, it eats away at you from the inside out.
0: Isn't it funny how we can, we're so confident in each other's training and abilities in the physical sense. I mean, we, we risk our lives frequently and, we put our lives into the hands of our partners.
1: Mm. Sometimes
0: a dozen times in a, in one shift, right? And and there's no second thought to it. We trust, we have that level of trust with them on that, on the physicality of the job, you know, of if we get shot at, we're confident they're going to shoot back or that they they watch our six when we're doing the building search, you know? And we have that level of confidence and trust with them on that end, but we don't have that level of trust with them on the emotional end. You know? mm. and And it'd be be such a gift to us as a as a group if we could trust each other in that same way and i think we can i think it's exactly what you're saying we can somebody's just got to be the first to talk about it you know and and that's That's it and that's really what you're doing here in on the strong life project what were you alluded to it a minute ago but what were the first signs of trouble that you remember you know i I, 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 was it was it the bender you talked about uh, coping with alcohol earlier but what what was the first time that actually scared you you scared yourself
1: Oh, gee, that's a good question. Um, I can't really remember a first time. I can remember, like, so I was 19, and I didn't drink before I joined the police at all. So my um, my granddad was an alcoholic, dad doesn't drink, so alcohol just wasn't really around in my family. When I joined the police, one of my very first shifts was um, ended up at a, an end-of-shift barbecue with, you know, a dozen officers standing around drinking, and one of them turned to me and said, um, "Here," like handed me a beer and said, do you drink? And I had drunk before. Like It's not like I'd never tried. But I wasn't a heavy drinker. And I was like, yeah, yeah, of course I do because I'm looking around going, well, everyone else is. So I'm not going to say no. And uh, and what I realized was the first probably signs of it is just that the frustration and anger. And it's probably, you know, I was probably only 21 or 22. And again, you know, I've got the strong Irish heritage. So I've got a good Irish temper. So, you know, I didn't know which part of it was normal and which part of it wasn't. But it was the frustration and the anger at and probably at other cops too, you know, like looking around and I remember I remember looking at guys that would be my age now, you know, pushing fifty, who would have had twenty-five or thirty years on the job by that stage, or even, you know, had, you know, fifteen, ten or fifteen years, and I remember looking at them thinking, like, why do you not give a shit? Why do you not care anymore? Why are you so cynical? And that's it was probably as I started to become cynical. It's probably in a couple of years into the job where I started to become very cynical of people, very, you know, pretty reactive, and again, very isolated from the, from normal society. That uh, that that was the first warning sign. In hindsight, the thing for me when I talk to other cops now, I go, the thing to look at. There's a few. There's a great um, model that came out of Canada, and um, actually, I find it's energy like, and, and our department has just adopted, and ironically. I'm now going back into the department I work work for, doing a bit of work with them on this exactly the sort of stuff, which is fantastic. And it's like a green, yellow, orange, red light system. And they talk about things that that to be aware of for mental health for for police and for first responders. And they get changes in in your behaviour. If you've always been someone who trains pretty regularly and you stop training, that's that's it, that's it. If you start drinking excessively, that's a sign. If you're becoming you know, you've got a much shorter temper. That's a sign. If you're, like, you're married with kids. If you're more irritable towards your wife, or you're more snappy with your kids, that's a sign. And to me, there's a fine line between being aware and being paranoid. But in this situation, Garrett, I don't think for a second that anybody can be too vigilant or too hyper-aware for themselves to go, Am I? You know, is the job affecting me? Because it is going to. But the sooner you get a hold of it, then the less impact it's going to have. And the people close to you I think are the ones who are probably going to be the ones who will see it before you do. So be it your wife or your best friend or your mum and dad or whoever that is. And then to me it's actually having the conversations with them and say, you know, and I'll and we'll, we'll finish that and then I'll make that comment. Having the conversations with them to say, you know what, if you're seeing a change in my behaviour or you think there's something going on, please tell me because I might not see it. And now all this advice I give, I put myself back in that twenty-two or twenty-three year old's body and I wouldn't have listened. Because I didn't, I didn't, I didn't care. I didn't even know it was a possibility. So to me, the, the probably the three early warning signs would be excessive alcohol use, and excessive for me might have only been one, one or two nights every two weeks. Like it wasn't like I was up getting up every morning and having whiskey for breakfast. The second part is definitely anger, and and being very quick to anger. And the third one for me is definitely like nightmares or dreams, flashbacks, you know, whatever you want to call it. So when you're when you're waking up in the middle of the night and um and I had, you know, different girlfriends ahead at the time and certainly when, when I met my now ex wife when we were we were married when I was in the job, but she would she'd often I'd wake up in the morning and she'd be in, in another bedroom and I go, What's going on? She goes, Oh, you were chasing or fighting someone in your sleep last night for ages and and you know, you kept hitting me not as in you know, kept bumping into her. So she said oh, I had to move beds. So any of those sort of things, that's not normal behavior.
0: What was it? What was then the first time that you decided you needed to get help? Did did it did it hit absolutely rock bottom for you before you did? Yeah, yeah. So talk about mate, yeah. So talk about you mentioned you, you briefly mentioned them a minute ago, but I think and I don't want to be salacious in bringing it up again, but I want to for people I want people to understand how close and and how bad it got for you. And sure how, mate no no plays. and no
1: don't please don't apologize that's i'm so happy to talk about it so it was um i was getting angrier and angrier i'd, I'd um i did about i'd done about seven years on the canine unit and then was just getting more and more angry and i got to the point where i i didn't even really want to go to work which was just not like me you know like so i would put on my uniform and i'd be i'd be frustrated and angry and Simple things mate, like there was I remember vividly there was a call for and I can't remember what the job was, but there was a call for something. And um the as the dispatcher was trying to give the information, there was a lot of units talking over the top, and it was an urgent job, it was a pursuit or an untiled up or something similar. And um and I called to go to it and they sent me like the low priority. And I was so angry and I said, No, I'll and I went back and said, No, no, I'll be going code two, you know, priority code two. They said, No, you won't be. And I remember getting that angry that I punched the steering wheel and cracked the, the center cap of the steering wheel of my of the police car, and I was like in you know, and you know my language wasn't great, and I was so angry, and I remember thinking like that was just normal to me, and I got to the point of that frustration, I thought that's it. so I left um, a couple of friends of mine were in the covert surveillance unit, so obviously you know playing clothes. Un, you know unmarked cars, not n- no police insignias, nothing, and then you're following around you know drug dealers and major organized crime figures and different things, so it was pretty cool and um and that was a job I thought would be pretty cool and I went and did that for a while, and then that frustrated me because I was bored. there was you know you, you sat in the car for ninety percent of the time for ten percent of the time I was a thousand miles an hour, but ninety percent of the time I was bored and just stuck with my thoughts in my head and then that that did my head in. went back to the canon unit. And then I worked in a um the low lowest socioeconomic area in our department works with, the highest crime, highest violence, you know, worst resourced and uh, probably the worst place I could have gone in hindsight, but went there and, and, you know, just was so disinterested in going to calls. And I got to the point where I would only go if I was tasked. So they'd call me specifically as a dog and say, can you attend this job, can you attend that job? And I got to the point where I, where I was wanting to, I didn't avoid any, but I wanted to avoid jobs. And I thought, this just isn't me. And I had never considered that I would ever leave the police; That just was never a consideration. So I was going to be a cop either dead by 30 or till I retired. That was was always going to be the case. And I used to say to people all the time, I would do this job even if they didn't pay me. So if somebody paid my bills, I would do it even if they didn't pay me because I just love it. So it got to the point I went to a particular job a very long story. Basically, a guy had stabbed another guy 14 times. We found him in a rural sort of property and, um, you know, took him into custody, put him in the back of a, of a patrol car. He kicked out all the windows and was, he was a pretty violent guy. He was an outlaw motorcycle guy, gang member. I pulled him out of the car. He had a pretty – and he got his, his cuffs in front of his uh, – out from behind his legs and in front of him, and he's put on a pretty good a pretty good show. And I've, uh, I've, let's say uh, – uh, restrained him fairly um but you know basically I just dominated him as hard as I could so I was very violent choked him unconscious and um we hogtied him and I had to take a young policewoman back to get a, another patrol vehicle because that was obviously then a crime scene and we got in the car and drive away and she was only a young pretty young girl and I remember driving along and she's looking out the window and just very quiet and I said to her you okay and she looked at me and she had a one tear running down her face. And she said, uh, I thought you were going to kill him. And I looked at her and I said, well, I was. I said, me or him, it's him. And then she didn't talk to me for the rest of the, for the, rest of the drive. I went home. So I dropped her off at the station and, and I had some pretty harsh opinions on her at that point. You know, I thought, you know, she's weak and whatever. Went home, went to bed. It was probably two or three in the morning, woke up, at you know, five in the morning, shaking and and crying, and just had a breakdown pretty much. And I was like, "What the fuck?" And then sat up for about half an hour, went back to sleep, woke up, you know, mid morning, and just thought, "No, I'm not going to work today." A group of my friends were going to the to the races, horse races, drinking. So I thought I'd do that. Went to the doctor, got a certificate. He told me he thought I had glandular fever at that point, um, which is like mono, I think you guys call it. And um, so I went out that night. Big night on the drink. Another friend of mine who had, I now know, was going through a similar sort of thing. You know, we'd probably had a twelve-hour drinking session. We were at a bar. He'd had a big. He was having a big argument with his wife outside the bar. I went outside to sort of calm him down. She went inside. Him and I ended up in a fight, and I broke his nose. And and uh, and then and then I never went back to the job from that point. And because from that, when I was on sick leave for the glandular fever for like two weeks or three weeks. And I went back and saw the doctor and he said, you know, I don't know how you've still been working and whatever. I was so run down and so so exhausted that I didn't realise that I'd even had the glands of fever. My body was even shutting down. And it got to that point of the darkness then that I was so terrified of not being able to be a cop. And, like, this is another whole hour podcast, so I don't want to go into all the detail. I basically went and saw a psychiatrist and psychologist because I had to with the department you know, they told me I had severe PTSD. I didn't even know what it was. I thought it was only something Vietnam veterans here in Australia suffered from. I'd never heard of it in policing. And um, so I was shattered. And got to the point, mate, then I was on sick leave, still had my dog at home and my Glock at home because we always took our firearm home and the, and the vehicle home. And somehow the, the squad that I was in, they'd overlooked taking my firearm. So I still had that with me. And as I was looking at the very real possibility, only in the, over a couple of weeks I've been on sick leave, a number of good friends of mine, in inverted commas, cops dropped away and just I never heard from them. I got a fair bit of feedback from some other guys, you know, that I was getting getting ridiculed pretty badly by uh, the guys that I thought my really good friends, good mates. And so that all impacted me so badly. I got to the point where I was barely doing anything. And uh, so my I'd had a, a huge fight with my girlfriend at the time who became my wife she'd left and gone to her mum's back to her mother's house and I'd spent most of one day drinking which I never drank at home but I would I'd went out and met a couple of guys for lunch we'd had a pretty big drinking session I went home and mate went into the gun safe pulled the gun out and I was dead set lying in bed for hours with it in tears and went from tears to anger to disbelief to overwhelm and had the Glock there in my hand just time and time again just trying to find the reasons not to end my life and that My ex-wife came home. My my girlfriend at the time came back, and that continued on for another two days. She never knew. She went to sleep. I'd wake up in the middle of the night, same thing. And it was like over a weekend, so I was out drinking during the you know during the afternoons. It was all just the the, the worst possible scenario. And got to the point that it was three nights in a row, and there's pretty much finger on the trigger, gun at my head for hours on end, trying to find reasons not to, and. That darkness, and the 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 part that I find so amusing now is that I can talk about it so freely and so peacefully now to you on the other side of the world I've never met, and to you know however many thousands of people might listen to this podcast, and it doesn't concern me. Back then, the fear of people knowing I was struggling, and the fear of people knowing where I'd gotten to, had me want to take my life rather than ask for help, and that was such a heartbreaking experience for me now to look back on that any human being can get to that point when they're surrounded by their brothers and sisters in blue who, as you say, operationally have got their back all the time. And then only another you know week or two later so what I actually did was I called one of the guys I work with in that unit, in the dog unit, and I said, Hey, um I said, mate, the boss has forgot to take my take my gun, come and get it, because I don't want him getting in the shit. So I didn't tell him anything about it. He came around right and took it. So then that was sort of that instantaneous ability to end my life left, which was fantastic. So there, and then I went to a party not long after and there was a lot of the SWAT guys, other dog squad guys. And I was the king of the kids, you know, in that group. I was always the, a smart ass. I was, always had a sarcastic remark and was always, the, you know, very competitive in, in what we do. I'd be driving to a job at 3 a.m., Lights and sirens, and I'd be on the phone ringing up one of the dogs, the other dog handlers, going, Yep, I'm, I'm going to get another one. I'm going to catch someone. I'm, I'm ahead of the tally, you know, those sort of games. <laughs> and went and had that. Um,
0: we all have that, that guy.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's right. And I was 100% that guy. And went to this party, and all these guys that, that I, you know, I looked up to and I you know, held in high regard were, didn't know what to say to me, and I, and I get it. But I didn't at the time, so I felt like I was just being shunned and felt like that, that that I was losing it all. And I was a pretty heavy smoker at that time, which, again, is part of the whole self-medication thing. Went back, and I went back to the hotel room. It was an, on the Gold Coast, which is like a tourist sort of spot about an hour from where I live. Went went back to my unit to get another pack of cigarettes and and was just so, again, beside myself going, how am I going to move forward? What am I going to do if I'm not a cop? What do I do? You know, my whole identity is gone. And I sat on the outside of the balcony again for you know probably 20 or 25 minutes smoking cigarettes and, and I was pretty pretty uh, three sheets of the wind at that point trying to, again, find reasons not to jump off and I didn't, thank God. But it was actually getting to the depths of that darkness, mate, that I never knew existed. And since that time when I've spoken to other guys who have been in a similar situation, they've, you know, a number of them got to that similar place and the funny thing that is always the case, the guys that have suicided, that, you know, a couple who I knew, and they weren't very close to me, but I knew them, you know, pretty well, and, and a number of other guys who I don't know, but good friends of mine know, said they were the guys you would never, ever think it would happen to. They were always the life of the party, the biggest personality. They were always the guys you'd look at and go, he's living the dream. It could not be him because of that mask again, mate. And that's where it comes to.
0: What was it that eventually, you mentioned, you know, leaving your place on the line, on the thin blue line, and I think that a yeah. lot of guys struggle with that, and you talked to already about the fear of what would happen, and, you know, to, <clears throat> to me, I was having this conversation with, with a partner the other day when we were trying to, we were kind of jokingly talking about how we, you know, you go, go to a barbecue and you're having a conversation with an accountant or Or someone, you know, and it's just—it's just not interesting to you in the sense that, you know, after law enforcement, after you've done this, after you've gone a thousand miles an hour, after you've seen the things you see, nothing else matters in the sense that that there's no other job that can be as important. And it's easy to feel that way, and you get into this Mm. habit of thinking just that—that—that I can't go back to the private sector because nothing else is going to be as important as what I'm doing now. And that's, that's obviously a slightly self-serving, but I think it's a very real belief, you know, that I, I mean, I was in marketing before I became a cop, right? There's no yeah. way I could go back to being a marketing manager at a mid-level firm, <clears throat> you know, holding meetings, yeah. staff meetings on Monday morning, talking about how we're going to sell toilet paper, right? I mean, <laughs> that's after, after, after this job, how did you eventually become okay with the fact that you needed to leave?
1: But it was really. It was a pivotal moment. Um, a very good friend of mine, who's quite an aloof individual, he um, he rang me when, in you know, not long after I was on stress leave, and he uh, he said, "You've got to come out and uh, come and see me." It was like a Tuesday night, and I said, "No, no, no, no way." And he said, yeah, "Look, come out. I want to have a couple of beers. and I need to talk to you about what's going on." And I, I avoided those conversations. Obviously, I went out, and met him, and he. Uh, and again, his words, not mine. And he sort of said to me, he said, "You can't leave the job." He said, "Because if a guy like you leaves a job who loves it, and lives it, and breathes it, then what are the rest of us doing here? You know, it doesn't make any sense." And and uh, and I said, I said, well, "You know, I just have to go because it's, I literally don't think I'm going to be able to cope and survive if I stay." And he said to me, he said, "Tell me in one sentence why you have to leave." And I said to him, "The cost to me personally of doing the job." is far too high compared to the good that I can do. So it actually came to the point where for the first time in my life, out of pure necessity, I had to look and put myself first. Because if I kept doing the job, number one, I probably wasn't going to be very safe for other officers and, and other people because I wasn't in the place where I was going to be operating at my best. And number two, that it was literally going to drive me to the ground and it just wasn't worth it. And Unfortunately, at that point, you know there was there there was no such thing as um as mental health for police. There was no such thing as talking about it or whatever else so I literally then made, i i didn't know what I was going to do, so you know I went and studied financial planning, and I did that and then i've you know I've worked in property development for many years, and as much as my job's you know I enjoy it, but I don't love it and it's not I'm far more passionate about this the strong life and helping police and doing that than I am about you know, property development, I make a lot more money than I did doing as a police officer and all those things. But mate, still exactly what you say is true. The unfortunate part for police who retire is to understand that there is not going to be another job that will give you the same feeling you get. That's just a reality. My dad, you know, 42 years in, he's been out now 11 years and his whole life Still revolves around the police. That's the only thing he's happy about talking about, it, being involved in. He's involved in a lot of retired police association stuff, and that's great. And I think it's again one of the things that we need to talk about and educate officers about is, you know, if you maybe you get to a point where you can't do this thing for the rest of your life. Who knows? Hopefully not. If if you're prepared to do the work and and the, you know the prehab and the diet and the sleep and all the things, I think really contribute to to the mental health breakdown. If you do all that stuff and talk about these things early, then you can do it forever. If you get to the point where you have to go, it's understanding that that is reality. You're not going to find something else that's as great. Something that I've, um, in the early stages, I didn't want anything to do with police. I was really quite anti-police when I left and I was pretty bitter and I blamed the department for why I ended up where I ended up and all these things. And In the end, was, they were all my choices. It was a consequence of my own action. They could have done a better job, sure, but I'm not a victim to it. It was my choice. The thing that I found was I maintained a really strong group of friends that that were cops and still being a police officer will be the best years of any career I have, I believe. But CrossFit, ironically, and I know you CrossFit and and people who don't think it's a cult, but that's one of the places that in the last – I've been doing it seven or eight years now and I'm by no means any elite athlete. But uh, it's somewhere I find a lot of camaraderie and you get to push yourself really hard and whatever. So it's actually trying to find things in your life, hobbies, whether it's for me, CrossFit's part of it. A big part of it now is doing these podcasts that I do and writing books and talking to cops. You know, whether it's you know volunteering as a firefighter, like whatever, find something else in your life mm-hmm. that can fill a little bit of that gap that the police leaves, because you're never going to fill it with normal things.
0: You know, and I think too. There's you. are a point that fill it with fill it with service right i mean that you're you're, you're yeah, going good, back and filling book. that void with a service uh in what you're doing in the books you're writing and then in the strong life project so let's talk about that uh, the stronglifeproject.com, that's your website and then yep. uh the the podcast what is the podcast what is it about what and what's your goals with it and and give give people a general sense of the message
1: yeah sure so the message really it's it's very much focused towards men but I've I've changed that almost to go focus towards alpha personality. So there's plenty of alpha women in in the police, right? But Mm -hmm. it's very much for me focused towards men and not just police, military first responders, but that sort of personality. It's about just delivering that positive message to men about, I think we've got pretty soft in a lot of ways. So I think men in, in reality, in life, in 2017, we don't know whether we should be holding doors for open for women or not. We don't know whether it's okay to be strong or not. We don't know whether it being an alpha male is good or not. There's all this sort of rubbish. And there's a lot of crap that goes on, Garrett, that's about, you know, men not talking about them, uh, about things. So the strong life itself, strong is an acronym for living with strength, tenacity, resilience, optimism, nurturing and generosity. And the whole essence of it is about just my story as an example of a pretty extreme version of where you can get to if you don't look after yourself and you don't do what's best for you. But the whole overarching message is just getting men talking about what's going on for them. Women talk all the time about how they feel and what's going on and what they struggle with and what they don't. We don't. We keep it to ourselves. You know, it's um, a very good mate of mine who's who's not a cop. We went to high school together. For a number of years, I'd, I'd ring him and say, hey, how are you? And he'd go, same shit, different day. That was just the general response mm-hmm. and and as I've sort of gone through this bit of a journey and I hate that word but he's he's gone through something similar in his life and we talk about it often just that men, people in general but men as, an, as a group I think I can influence really look, so we look down on anybody who speaks out because they're finding things difficult, anybody who wants help, anybody who's not sure what's going on in their life mm-hmm. and how they can change it we look at as weak. So strong life is just about giving some information and starting the conversation about men's mental health, about how to deal, you know, as a husband, as a father, I've got two daughters, 12 and nine, I've been through a divorce, you know, in a lot of ways, I've ticked every box on how to not do things well in my life. And in some ways that to be able to pass a bit of that knowledge and experience on to, to go, you know what, if, if you're willing to trust yourself and it's the number one thing, trust yourself in who you are and One of my favourite sayings is what other people think of me is none of my business. Just not give a shit what other people think. And it's not easy and it takes practice like any other skill. But if you can practice that skill and get to the point where you trust yourself and you look after you, number one, then everything else in your life turns out fine. But we've got to be talking to each other and also looking at your guy to your left and the guy to your right. Whether you're a cop, whether you're a soldier, whether whether you're a builder or whether you're an accountant, you know, looking around at your friends and going, you know, "Are they okay?" Because I don't know how many times you've had the conversation with a guy who's struggling, and a couple of guys I know that have suicided, and there'll be one or two who'll go, "Oh, I didn't think he was doing so great, but you know, I didn't want to say anything because I didn't want to intrude." To me, it's about opening that up and going, "Yeah, that's just such bullshit." That one of the podcasts I did recently is like, "What would you say standing at the graveside? So I do the daily podcast. It's probably ten or twelve minutes on different topics, just things that, that come up in life, and it's my opinion. It's, you know, for 15 years now since I left the police, I've done every self-help, personal development, happy clapping, you know, course that I hated every minute of, most of them, but I've gained a lot of great knowledge and, and skills out of it to now where I'm the happiest I've ever been in my life, fittest and healthiest I've ever been in great relationship, you know, awesome relationship with my kids, and life's really going so well, and it's just about trying to help other men realise and other cops realise that you can have that.
0: What are some of your favorite resources to direct, to direct people to for those self-help or development or any of those yeah, things? Sure. Do you have any books or anything websites anything like that
1: yeah there's a lot there's there's a lot of books look I've read so many different books basically to me is just every it's personal to who you are right so mm-hmm. you know like if like your podcast um, I just google police podcast came saw yours and and I listen to yours now and even though I'm not a serving officer I pick up a lot of great things from that to me it's actually about now. Whatever it is that you're looking for inspiration on or education on, go to Google and type it in, because it's just really that simple. You, we've never been in a better environment in our lives to be able to say, you know, if you want to be a better dad, type in how how to be a better dad. If you want to be a better cop, you know, police police podcast or or whatever. Mm-hmm. There's so many different books. Mate, I've read a lot of Deepak Chopra is a bit of a spiritual guy. I've read a lot of um um oh I'm mental blank. The guy um, Wayne Dyer. And then I listen to people like you know Gary Vaynerchuk. I don't know if
0: you've yeah. heard of Gary,
1: Gary V. v. I listen to Gary V. Um, I um, so I'm just going to open up my. At the moment, I've got because um, I use I listen to a lot of audiobooks. Um, I've got the Big Leap by Gay Hendricks, which is about you know leaving a new place in your life. Tribes is one by Seth Godin that I love. Um, Crush it by Gary Vee, and a number of these are business sort of books, but mm-hmm. the, but it's all the same thing. Whatever's going to make you great in your career as a cop, as an accountant, will make you a great husband and a great father. But the number one resource for me is just looking after yourself as you know you as your own resource. So as far as eating well, training well, sleeping well, you know, using alcohol and stuff in moderation, just looking after yourself, treat yourself as a number one priority. And something that I heard Greg Armanson say on your podcast, and I think he's amazing, was you know for police to treat themselves as a professional warrior athlete. If you the guys listening to your podcast were professional athletes in the NFL or the NBA, how would they? How seriously would they take themselves? You know, in their health and fitness and their nutrition and all those things, is to understand that you guys are professional athletes and in far more stressful situations than NBL or NFL, uh, um, NBA or NFL players. So put the work in educate yourselves do whatever whatever it takes to make sure you're operating at your best for yourself and that you know that's the simplest thing these days nobody even needs to know you're doing this work because that's still a big thing for people mm-hmm. you can listen to these podcasts no one knows you can be reading books no one knows you can be listening to webinars no one knows like it just to me facebook social media is an amazing thing for that all my social media feed isn't it's not full of people's photos of their breakfast and dinner because I don't give a shit. It's, you know, it's full of personal development. It's full of fitness. It's full of those sort of things. And right. every article that pops up. That's so my Facebook's probably my biggest resource. Because I just look at the things that other people like. I look at the things, you know, like I've I've looked at your podcast, who you who you follow, and and um I was just listening to the podcast before we got on here with the guy that um, from New Jersey, whose name escapes me now, that's from the Wilson. fitness.
0: Yeah, Wilson from Police Fitness Nutrition, yeah. Yeah, Wilson. So like guys like that,
1: you just go on and I'll, I'll listen to their podcast and what they're doing and the resources they come up with. It's just that whole being able to be involved in that same community and for cops it's cops so you can understand what's going on and and mm-hmm. share that around. That's part of when you start talking about this stuff, you start sharing your resources.
0: Yeah, it's all excellent advice. Sean, thanks for being on the show. Where can people learn more about The Strong Life Project? Where can they find you?
1: Yeah, so com, that's where it is. Um, and that'll be, I'm la- launching the book, My Dark Companion, in the next probably three weeks that, that's being published. So um, that'll be on there as well. And that's very much that resource for, you know, please to understand the journey and understand how to come out the other side. And then The Strong Life Project podcast, obviously on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, And, uh, you know, by all means, reach out to me on Facebook, Strong Life Project. Um, I'm on Instagram as Sean O'Gorman, which is S-H-A-U-N-O-G-O-R-M-A-N. But, um, you know, just if you Google a Strong Life Project, you'll find the website. Hit me up through the contact us there. So happy to talk to any of your guys that have that sort of um, information that they want. And... Pretty soon, you know, it's, if they get on there and just subscribe into the page on the email list, then I can let them know what's coming up. I'm going to start doing probably weekly webinars soon for for, probably for police and military specific, I'm thinking at this point, just so guys can get a bit of that information. And again, be anonymously typing in questions and asking, you know, opinions on things and giving it out that way. So
0: they're probably the easiest ways. Excellent. We'll put all links to the show uh, in the show notes for all your contacts for people to find you. Uh, on the on the podcast and on Instagram I really enjoy the podcast I like the 10 minute you know obviously this is a longer format uh podcast I like your 10 minute episodes they're uh full of good doses of ass kicking and um uh, <laughs> Thank and you just you know good, good like there was I, I forget which one I was listening to but I was I was moping about something and I and I had your episode on in, in anticipation of you coming on in a couple of weeks and uh and it got me out of my funk for the day too. So uh, I get awesome. I get a lot out of that, and I encourage everyone to subscribe to your show, the Strong Life Pod, uh, the Strong Life Project podcast, uh, on Instagram or on Twitter. Sorry, Jesus, I'm guess I'm done talking. <laughs> on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, just like the Squad Room is. Sean, thanks That's for your it. service to everything. To all the cops uh, all around the world, I know that you're reaching people, and I know that people are going to hear this, and I know and 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 they're going to have a positive. It's going to have a positive influence on listeners here. I know that because I've gotten emails from people who are in your situation or who have been there. Uh, emails from people who are, you know, maybe sat in bed last night with with the Glock at their side, sure, and um, had the strength to to you know get up and try again.
1: Might, uh... Sorry, to cut, there's just one thing I'd like to say before we finish, and it's actually, sure. I um I got a email recently, and 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 it's just off the back of my story on my website, and that's pretty, you know, there's nowhere near the detail that we've gone into today, and it was from an officer, and I won't in the states, and I won't say where he is from for his in anonymity, but he um he emailed me and just said he was involved he in an incident where he was shot multiple times, survived, and um, got to a place where he was forced to retire off the job and he his words in the email were I got to such a dark place that I didn't know how I was going to move forward and he said just knowing just he said your story was like looking in a mirror and understanding that you've come through the other side gives me hope and that was it like it was only like it was a, a two or three lines and I was you know, I was pretty emotionally teased my eyes when I read it and uh and the thing and I sent it sent the email back to him I sent an email back to him and the way that it was written, and again, this is the cop coming at me, the way that it was written, the grammar wasn't great, the sentence structure wasn't great. I'm looking at it going, you know what? The time it was sent from the States was early a.m. He's probably in a pretty dark place. I'd say probably been you know, drinking alcohol fairly heavily for a few hours by by the, the tone of the email. So I sent him an email back straight away the next day, you know, and I said, look, anything I can do to help you out, brother, let me know. You know, I'm so happy to talk, and, et cetera, and I didn't hear back. And then I let it go for about a week and I sent him another one. And I actually sent him a copy of the transcript of the book at that point. And I said, look, read this if you like. I don't expect you to respond. It's the last time I'm going to contact you. But just know that there's plenty of other people out there going through the same thing. And if we all stand together, we can help each other. And now I never heard back from that guy, right? And part of me goes, you know, I hope that, that he's okay. And because I knew his name and whatever and, and, and I, I Googled him and, had a look at his Facebook um, or one of his social media profiles, and he's still active on there. And he's, and you know, so obviously, it's he hasn't taken his life or anything. But I looked at that guy and thought, you know what, obviously, at the deepest, darkest time that he was, where he's obviously pretty inebriated and he's reached out to me on the other side of the world, if I can tell my story and it can make a difference, that's what it's all about. And the message for that for all of the cops out there is if you guys talk to each other and tell each other your stories, then. You, that's all the difference you need to make. It's a simple thing.
0: Excellent. I love it. John, thanks for your time, man. Appreciate it. I hope that we can maybe uh, add a second uh, episode here where we can talk about these things in depth uh, even further. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Squadron. If you like what you heard today and if you got something out of the conversation, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. I read them all and it really helps spread the word of the show. If you listen to this episode and you heard something that spoke to you directly and you acknowledge that you need help, there's a resources out there for you. There's two of my favorites. There's Safe Call Now, which is for specifically for first responders, a 24-hour hotline. Counselors are standing by and able to talk to you about whatever the issue is. You can call them at 206-459-3020. You can go to their website, safecallnow.org. The National Suicide Prevention Hotline, also 1-800-273-TALK, T-A-L-K. Please use those phone numbers. Use them if you need to talk to somebody. Email me, garrett, at thesquadroom.net, if you need more resources, and I will do absolutely everything I can to help you get there. Talk to your friends. Talk to your loved ones. It's important to talk about it. That's why we do these episodes. So if you heard something that you know someone needs to hear, You can forward this episode directly to them from our website at thesquadroom.net. You can share it with them. You can grab their phone, open their podcast app, and download this directly to them so they know that they are not alone. They know that there's other people out there struggling with this, and they know that you can get better. Sean's a perfect example of someone who couldn't get much closer to the end and who dug himself out of it, and he did it the right way. All right, to keep up to date on The Squad Room, you can text the Squad Room all one word, to 44222 to get signed up for our mailing list directly from your phone. And of course, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at The Squad Room, and also on Facebook. And as I mentioned a minute ago, our job's tough. Tougher than anything, you can be put into a few words or just an hour-long podcast. If you want to reach out, start a conversation, ask a question, reach me at garrett at Squadroom.net. That's Garrett with two R's and two T's. Lastly, I want to tell you that this episode is brought to you by audible.com. With over 180,000 titles in their inventory, Audible has hundreds of audiobooks that apply to us as first responders. If it's a slow shift or a long commute, audiobooks are a great way to continue your education. To get a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook of your choice, go to audibletrial.com forward slash the squad room to sign up. Even if you just use it for the 30 days and you don't, uh, you don't subscribe, you really help out this show so we can do things like get Sean on and talk about these important topics. Until next time, take care of each other, take care of yourself and stay safe.